podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome again, everybody, to Ness and Dormy, your chat about 80s and 90s football. And this is part two of our dive into Aston Villa's League Championship and Euro Cup winning years of 81 and 82. I'm Lee again, and joining me once again to finish this off are Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. Hello again. And Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. So... We are, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on at Ness and Dorma Pod on the Twitter. I'm at Blood and Mud if you want to get in touch with me. But if you do, you'll get a lot of rugby chat on that address. So you might want to avoid it. Um, Gary, you are? At Gary Naylor 999. And Mike, you are? Uh, at Mike W. Gibbons. Lovely. We're on Acast and Apple and all those places. We're also on patreon.com slash Ness and Dorma. Thanks to everybody who gives you their support there. You get If you go and sign up there, you get a few extra bits and pieces, like the now-completed rundown of the Mexico 86 goals. We're also starting a series called Ness and Dorma Extra Time, which will be interviews with authors and some other special features, which uh, you'll be getting first as a patron before anybody else does. Uh, we've had one more patron who's, who's flagged up the fact that um, we've not mentioned them yet. So thank you very much to 81 Walnut, who uh, is a lovely supporter of ours. Thank you very much. So if you like what we do and you'd like to, us to keep doing it, then please lend us your support over at patreon.com slash Dorma. Thank you. So back to business then. We left part one uh, having just run through the team that Ron Saunders and Tony Barton put together and brought them into the 1980-81 season. Um, you know, a mixture of, well, we said we money, they moneyballed it, didn't we? And, the, and we've been through all that. So it's probably time, finally, after, I think, what, we're now into <laughs> nearly two hours to actually start talking about the football. <laughs> so the season itself then, um, an incredibly tight season. Was it, Mike, would you, is it 94-95-esque, to give it a more modern comparison in terms of how tight it was, do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think we we've made this point on, uh, I think the pod we did about um, Arsenal in ninety seven, ninety eight was, I mean, even then the competitive depth of the league you know, ran a lot uh, lower than it does now, certainly. And I think it, you go back even further to eighty eighty one, um, that's certainly true. So um, you know, you, teams did win league titles despite losing eight, ten games. Um, in mm. some seasons, and that would it would kind of be sniffed at now. And I, th- I think we made the point on that Arsenal pod, you know, when City and Liverpool, when they're winning their league titles now, they're assumed to be the greatest teams of all time because you know they've got the highest points totals. But you know the competitive depth of the league is so much different now compared to to what it certainly what it would have been in eighty. Was it 81. still two points for a win in eighty one? In eighty one, yeah, this was the yeah. last season of two points for a win so it, it changed the the following season so if this season had have been played under three points for a win it would have been an 84 point season mm. out of uh out of the 42 game season which you know it's pretty strong that yeah because i um i thought because a lot of because it's forgotten about this season somewhere so i thought well was it a really low points season you know two points for a win aside but i actually looked at the seasons before you know liverpool won a season with 58 points 
you know, it's and mm. I think Liverpool won one year with sixty four points, but it was it was roundabout. It wasn't that it was everyone else was shite and losing loads of games and somehow <laughs> Villa managed to get there. Do you know what I mean? It was it was a normal season for that that period. I, I think that that Mike's right there, but it's an eighty four point season, but it's also a forty two game season. Mm. So it's like a 76-point season uh, under 38 points. Am, am I interpreting that correctly, Mike? Um, yeah, I think I'm not great on math. Have you got your I think, I think that, Mike? Come on. I think that works out. Actually, say 86, actually. I mean, it's, uh, which I was just saying I'm not great on math. I actually worked it out wrong. So I've just, I've just done the maths now. And, um, yeah, it'd be 86. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's. I think United won one of the early Premier Leagues when when they were still twenty two game seasons. They they would have they won one of them with eighty two points, I think. So, yeah, it's a, it's a more than respectable total uh, with which to win a league. Yeah, I mean part of this we've already said that you know, it's an extraordinary thing where Villa only used fourteen players for the whole of the forty two matches in. The, uh, the first division, and I think some of the the kind of stretching, if you like, of the uh, of the talent pool, where the top clubs are uh, essentially building shadow squads. I think uh, Milan were the first team who really pioneered that, where they would deliberately go out and and have a kind of European squad, um, but every every player on the field is covered by an international and so on. Well, you know, this didn't happen in those days. So if you were the in the sort of batch of footballers who were between, say, the 80th and 100th best midfielder in the uh, top flight, you were you were you were not sort of stuck in in kind of uh, Everton reserves or something or, or Villa reserves these days. You you were playing. You were playing at one of the uh, one of the clubs. One of the the. 20, uh, 22 clubs because there were 22 as well uh, then and I think this this kind of with the rise in the number of games particularly Champions League as opposed to European Cup being knockout and so on um, this this kind of uh, concentration uh, of money and of the talent into the, the Champions League sides I think that that does mean that there there are softer games, and you know, Shankly had the old joke, didn't he, when he said, you know, the uh, second best team on Merseyside were Liverpool reserves. <laughs> there were times when he had a point with that, but that was rare for a team. Um, and consequently, if you were if you were a good first division player, you were not waiting your chance for an injury at Manchester City or Manchester United to see if you could get a game. You were playing every week. Uh, for a side who would be top half, uh, you know, when you've had seasons like Manchester City and Liverpool have had the last two or three, and arguably even Manchester United in in their pomp, could any team beat any team? Well, obviously they kick off at nil nil, and they've each got a ball to kick, and things happen. But when you look statistically, um, the argument that any team can beat any team doesn't really hold up, and hasn't for at least ten years in the Premier League. Well, it was probably the case in the 80s and that that meant that you know Villa as we'll find can go to Middlesbrough and win and then Middlesbrough turn around and beat Ipswich and uh, and um, tilt the title that way well I think yeah when teams are winning well now when they're winning 7-0 away from home I think the the Premier League's marketing gloss of you know any team can beat any team doesn't um doesn't really um 
ring as true, I don't think. I don't, one other thing I would say about that era, actually, is it was very common to be a victim of your own success if you were a good side. Because, you know, if you had runs in the Cups as well, and, you know, the League Cup was two legs, there were, there were replays all over the place, mm. you know, there's European football as well. And if, you, if you're just playing the same team every game, pretty much, which was actually embedded into the laws of football then, that you had to, um, you know, you had to put your best eleven out on the pitch at all times. There was uh, a season where it's the sixty nine seventy season, where Leeds United, because there was uh, there was a big um, sort of cancellation of fixtures over winter, I think, and Leeds had uh, long runs in the uh, cup competitions as well. They ended that season, I think, by playing five games in eight days or something crazy like that and then all of their well not all of their players but a lot of their players then went on to play in the World Cup in um, in Mexico as well so it could be a bit of a treadmill like that and one thing I think that might have assisted Villa in this season is they went out of both the cup competitions mm. quite early on the League Cup and the FA Cup and they weren't in Europe as well which Ipswich were of course yes and Ipswich actually went on and won the UEFA Cup that season and got to the FA Cup semi-final. I counted it up. So Ipswich played an extra 24 cup games alongside the 42 they played in the league. So, uh, wow, <laughs> that's a, sh- a shift, as they say. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, things things were were different then. We were an industrial economy, and some of these things, yeah. How much of it is is true uh there's probably some kind of academic research that shows it but i certainly remember that that a lot of working class men and um you know most footballers uh were working class men um there was the the 40 hour working week a lot of the strikes in the 70s were about protecting overtime and i'm not talking about protecting overtime rates here i'm talking about protecting guaranteed overtime where you know, you would you would work weekends and you would work night shifts and stuff like like this. Uh, now, you know, we've still got a long hours culture in this country uh, today, which is uh, you know it's a problem in lots of different ways. But um, you know, I, I don't want to speak sort of entirely anecdotally because anecdote isn't evidence. But you know, my father worked evenings and weekends all the time, and sort of I just grew up thinking that this was what working class men did and largely they they did so so the idea of a a footballer playing on boxing day and then turning out on the 27th has often happened um in the 50s they used to play christmas day and play boxing day in fact right into the 60s they they did that that didn't feel unusual and i don't recall anybody talking about burnout uh much in fact the first time it cropped up was when people said that you know ipswich were were too stretched on in this particular season. That's the first time I I, I recall hearing it. And some of that was slightly patronising. You know, poor little Ipswich, you know, provincial tractor boys and all of this kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure people made much of it. Um, but, you know, I don't think anybody said said that uh, Liverpool ran out of steam when they were winning trebles and things like like this uh, but it was a it was a different world and one thing is absolutely for sure is that nobody ever ever talked about um, mental fatigue or psychological <laughs> strain it was only ever physical um, there was never a sense that playing football actually demanded any kind of mental resources whatsoever in fact the opposite was uh, was often said to be the case um, so there was talk of the pressure 
the pressure, and this was always sort of presented in inverted commas because nobody quite knew what it was. Uh, and there'll be there'll be pieces that will talk about the pressure uh, getting to Ipswich in this uh, season. But it was a, a very different world, and it's more enlightened today. I'm not saying it was better back then, but um, I don't think there were that many people who would be overly concerned. They would remark on playing five games in eight days, but far more likely to say the cost of going to five days, five games in eight days was steep rather than the impact it had on players. And as I say, if you attempted to rest or rotate a player, the pools people would be all over you saying you're screwing up our uh, pools, which itself uh, props up the, uh, the FA. So it was, uh, yeah, it was not allowed under the laws of the game, I think. So the season itself was, you know, to, it was it was a bit of, it was kind of Liverpool, Ipswich and Villa probably up until about January, wasn't it? But then it very quickly became about Ipswich and, and Villa really with Arsenal smelling around a bit but nothing nothing really much. I was we started talking in the first episode about Ron Saunders' role in this Liverpool team and and, and Liverpool team. <laughs> hmm. Aston Villa team. And it's interesting because the, the the players talk a lot. A lot of the players' feedback about Ron Saunders is about effectively. We just almost just kept telling them that they they would win it, and that was his kind of sole role in a way, apart from his strange pretend dropping of Tony Morley and things like this, and the fact that he gave them a bottle of brandy every game, yeah. which was absolutely amazing. That, yeah, everyone had a swig of brandy before we went out. Well, maybe I'd feel a bit more relaxed if that happened as well. <laughs> But it is really interesting because that point, you made a point in part one, Mike, around um, it's actually, it's about building the right combinations on the field and then they come together and then you get this wonderful uh, ball on the ground, fast paced play, which is what Villa had. And it seems that beyond that, if you listen to the players, all all Ron Saunders seemed to do is just say, oh, don't worry about it, we're still going to win it. Which is really interesting, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one thing about it, I guess, is when you... um play games with this kind of frequency I mean what, what real time do you get to train and you know <laughs> yes, and, and plan things um, and I'm sure they didn't pack in like recovery time in the way they do now into footballers lives I mean you, you hear lots of stories about you know if you get duffed 3-0 on a Saturday you're dragged into training at nine o'clock you know the <laughs> yes. next morning to uh, um, to pay for it and stuff like that <laughs> to feel but ashamed because um, that'll help yeah, and it just it it very much seemed to be about you know organisation with Villa and that kind of team ethos. He's got the oh, he comes across Ron Saunders as this you know very stern kind of PE teacher kind of um, manager. If you know what I I mean, it's you know here, yeah. here are your marching orders and let's do it. And you're you're either with me or you're not. And it's um, the the one the one documentary we saw on this actually I think all three of us have watched it now is um one thing that struck me actually from a lot of the players was they would make reference to Saunders but I didn't I, I may I may be completely wrong on this but I didn't feel a lot of warmth in terms of you know it doesn't have the kind of the Busby-esque anecdotes of like oh he would put his arm around me and you know tell me I'm a great player or you know all those kind of you know those kind of man management things um that you, you associate with some other managers but you remember Tony Morley's house fire that's house, extraordinary. His house it? is on fire. He came and he said, I can't trade today, boss, because I've got nothing because it's all destroyed. And he yeah, said, so, what did he say? We don't pay for that. We pay to play football. Yeah, so his, <laughs> his, um, his house burnt down, I think a couple of days before quite a big game. He lost literally everything he owned. He kipped in his car. 
then went into um, is it Foddymore Heath where they train, you know, covered in, you know, soot and everything like that and said, oh, my house is burnt down, I've lost everything. And yeah, <laughs> the reaction from the manager is not, blimey, go and take a day off, do what you need to do, sort your life out. It's And actually the, the kind of candid humour with which Morley uh, talks about that incident. Can you imagine how well, you know mentally scarring that must that must be for someone. He wasn't laughing much, and he was telling it though. That was noticeable. He kind of told it in, in more of a for me more of a matter of fact sort of way. That's just what he was like, you know. Yeah. So I, so I had to go in and train, then go to the shops and try and buy clothes and things like that. Yeah. I mean, he's probably come to terms with it in the interview. <laughs> yeah, really, but blimey, that's. that's uh, that's an incredible thing. To Imagine that being the same training training session he gave in the reserve bib as well, like before the uh, yeah. your house is burned <laughs> yeah. down. Here, have a reserve bib as well. Go I mean, I, I I thought about that too, and I mean, I don't think there's ever going to be a statue of Ron Saunders giving a piggyback to Dennis Mortimer outside Villa <laughs> Park, you know, the way there is at Anfield. But um, there's a certain kind of of approach to management which can be high risk. This is management in general. This isn't just football management, where you turn around to them and say, you're all adults. You need to sort your own lives out. You need to decide what you're going to do on the field. Um, and my job is to make you believe that that's the right thing and not to overtly criticise you when you get it wrong, but not to overtly praise you when you get it right. And that can be kind of very liberating. And if... If what we we heard is is true, and what you know everybody says, so I'm sure it is true that you know, Saunders was very much hands off, other than to detect, and and there are people who have this just detect with the antenna where morale or confidence is sliding, and then to sort of backfill it uh, as as required. Then you know, young men being told you're good at this and it's your decisions and you will reap the reward, um, that can really that can really work. It, it tends not to deal too well with full-on crises, but it's kind of of a piece, isn't it? If they're 2-0 down at half-time, Ron Saunders' team talk is, you're good enough, you're going to come back, you're going to win this. Tony Morley turns up, as you say, in his father-in-law's ill-fitting trousers instead of lost everything in the house. You're good enough. You can play for us on Saturday. You're going to win this. It's the same kind of of thing. And say it, it doesn't work all the time. But we've we've all had sort of the micromanagers and you know what they call helicopter parents these days who are hovering over people who should be taking responsibility and would enjoy the responsibility, but they're on the end of a piece of string all the time. Um, but that, of course, is where the 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 geniuses of, of certainly of football management, and it does require a form of genius, can can look into the eyes of these uh, young men who've, who've lived very often sheltered lives, who are in kind of arrested development because they've they've always been sheltered by you know being the best footballer in the school and the best footballer in their district and the, in the academy and the best footballer in the academy. They can look into the eyes and see which ones need the, you know, the proverbial kick up the backside, and which ones need the the arm round the shoulder. And they they don't just do that individually; they do it as a collective. So they build into the collective those different kinds of ego uh, levels of arrogance and confidence and so on, and, and can merge these together into combinations that d- 
deliver uh, victories. And that's why, you know, the mark of a great manager is, with all due respect to Ron Saunders, it's not to win a title once. It's that thing we talk about where managers build a second team or a third team. You know, we talk about the third Ferguson team at Manchester United. And it's going back to that challenge and saying, what have I got in my hands here? Not just as footballers, but as individuals. And how do I treat each of them? in order to get the most out of their ability. You've always got to have some wild cards. You've always got to have a, you know, today it's sort of Mbappe and Haaland or something you just sort of run on the field, kick the ball to, and, you know, there, there you are, you get goals. But you, you can win a few cup uh, cups that way. But to deliver over 38 or 42 games as it was then, um, you've got to find a way of, of building both that individual confidence and collective uh, confidence and sometimes just being hands off and saying you know if you believe in yourself as much as I believe in you you're going to win is extremely liberating yeah he seemed I think he seemed to find a balance between ruling by fear and showing faith as well I mean if you're going to pick the same 11 like literally every week that's got to embolden those players with a huge amount of confidence I think which doesn't then tip over into you know being blasé about well, I'm, I'm going to be in the team all the time, and then you know their standards don't uh, drop which, as a which result. Which Morley demonstrated by genuinely believing he was being dropped for that Everton game, despite yeah, the exactly. fact that he played every game and was quite clearly one of the best players yeah. in the team. You know, but he genuinely believed oh he, yeah. might, he might drop me for this. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, and if you and you know he he really got that squad to. I think you would have to say overachieve. You know, the season before they finished seventh, and the season after this they would finish tenth. So, but for, yeah, for that one season, he just seemed to find that that alchemy between, you know, a very small and specific group of uh, fourteen players, and he just went on to achieve extraordinary things. And you know, there has to be you know a huge amount of credit in the bank for for Ron Saunders for that. I think one of the other elements of that is if you're going to be that kind of of manager, um, you also have to have leaders on the field. And in that spine that we we talked about, uh, you've got Jimmy Rimmer's experience in goal, you know, at least ten year veteran of uh, first division football. Yeah. You've got Ken Ken McNaught, who showed some of his character in the Barcelona Super Cup that we'll come to uh, later on. Um, you know, a, a big stopper centre half. You've got Dennis Mortimer, who was the the captain and, in many ways, the focal point, the engine room, the box to box midfielder. And then you've got Peter Wither ahead of him, who'd seen it all, done it all, and that you, uh, you know, there was no trick in the book that he uh, he he didn't use uh, when when required. So you've got that spine. So the younger players, you know, if they are under pressure, you do go one nil down and after three minutes with uh, Richarlison strike into the corner, shall we say, <laughs> um, then then they don't need to look to the manager to say what to do or look to the bench to be given uh, an injection of confidence. They just look at the four men who ran up the middle of that side and think, well, they haven't got their heads down. They're still prompting. They still think we can win. We can do this. And yeah, that's that a... leadership on the field, and often it's you know it's not sort of shouting and pointing a lot. It's often 
to do with a kind of air that goes around you. And we all know this. The the charismatic leader is a is a risky proposition wherever you are in life, in any organization, in politics, in uh, business, wherever it is. But there are times when the bloody great to have around you know you just look at them and think yeah we're all right look at him he's on our side (laughs) yeah i mean that's often seen as a bit of an abdication of responsibility by the manager but you know it is the manager that puts that team together absolutely and put and puts those players out in the you know on the pitch often you know a reflection of of his own character um so that when things do go wrong and it's not always possible to sort things out you know from 50 yards away in a dugout by screaming over the top of a crowd, you know that, that you have got these, I guess, trusted lieutenants out there that that can um, do it for you. But um, yeah, should we talk about some football? Yes, yeah. <laughs> to one of the guys. So I think we're probably worth jumping into. I say it was fairly nip and tuck in the kind of three way trading of the lead up until Christmas time, and as we head into, you know, December and then eighteen January eighty one, the year ends with Liverpool top. Um, on goal difference ahead of Villa. Liverpool ended up finishing fifth, of course. Um, and then you have this kind of pivotal first week or so in January. Uh, Gary, do you want to talk about those games? Well, it, I mean, it often is the case, isn't it, that um, that January is so important because you come out of the, the Christmas fixtures, the FA Cup starts. And, you know, as a fan, it always felt like like it was either a break and an opportunity to reset if your season was going uh, less than well in the league. But if you were, if, if things were going well, sometimes it could be a bit of a hiccup, you know, and, and even in those days, you might sort of change one or two in the side. You wouldn't fully, fully rotate because it was against the, the rules. But the tenor of matches changed. And in those days as well, there were, replays and the replays were a bit like a kind of timeless test you know and in some replays you you kind of wanted the boat to be sailing from south africa so you'd have to jump on because otherwise you know you'd still be batting on 1570 for seven or something with three and four replays going into cup games so there's always the specter of um of replays uh and so you know third of january uh, Ipswich beat Villa 1-0 uh, in the FA Cup. And you, you look at that and you're thinking, first of all, we haven't got a replay. And secondly, they've now got more matches to think about, to prepare about. And the cliche that uh, gets rolled out, of course, is that now we can concentrate on the league. But the reason it's a cliche is that it was true in that the FA Cup was an extremely big deal uh, then. Um not quite the same deal now but uh then you know it was as prestigious as winning a title i mean i think that's fair to say uh there'll be people who contest that but you know the day out at wembley live match on television you know tarby celebrity bar brucey on the pitch all of that you know this was this was a, in, a, in a rather gray uh britain um FA Cup was a flaring uh, Catherine wheel of kind of football celebrity um, and everyone wanted it the players absolutely as much as the, the fans so you get that disappointment but then Ipswich look out and they can see a fourth round game you know the the draw would have been on radio um, balls in the hat clink 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 at uh, 
half past twelve or so, Radio 2, uh, Jimmy Young's show. Well, now we go to the FA at Lancaster Gate, where we have the draw for the third round, fourth round of the FA Cup. And um, they, they, they do that. But Villa are thinking about their next uh, league game. And the next league game is a chance to go top of the table. It's home against Liverpool. And they win 2-0. So there you have a kind of pivot in the season where Ipswich are looking at the campaign in the UEFA Cup, subsequently successful campaign, and the campaign in the FA Cup, where Villa are saying we've already got over the disappointment of going out of the FA Cup and we've beaten our key rival or one of our key rivals 2-0 at home to go top of the table. It feels like a mark in the sand. Villa had gone out of the League Cup to someone. Was it Cambridge or someone really shit and really early? So they got out of the way as well. Yeah, that was in the September, yeah. Um, So, yeah, just to touch on the Liverpool game quickly, actually. I mean, that's a a huge victory for the the reasons Gary says. And also because, I mean, everyone who... You know, remembers that time. Well, no, Liverpool were the yardstick. You know, if you, if you were going to win the title, like beating Liverpool it was almost a rite of passage, I think. Um, and a, a kind it's of confirmation again, isn't it? Yeah, and a confirmation that we'd be able to do it. I mean, it's hard to put into words really how just what a dominant force they were through the seventies and eighties. You, know, you can see it if you look down lists of you know league title wins and. Gary would rather Europe. not put it into words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, European Cups and League Cups. But, um, to, I mean, to put to put it in some kind of perspective, so from 1975 to 91, 16 seasons, there was only one season where Liverpool didn't finish in the top two. And it, it was this season. Mm. Um, I mean, they did manage to cheer themselves up by winning the European Cup <laughs> as, as a kind of, uh, you know, consolation prize for the first time. But... Um, this was a huge victory because it put Villa above Liverpool in the table as well. And, you know, Liverpool would would eventually slide down. And the two goals in this, I think, are, you know, quite iconic for Villa fans. So there's, um, the first goal is, it's, it's actually, a, it's a rebound that Peter With puts in, but it's after a brilliant bit of skill from Morley out in the wing where he just, he turns inside out. Uh, Richard Money, who had a yeah. very short, very short and brief, um, Liverpool career but it I mean just ghosts passed him from a standing start it's a wonderful bit of skill and then the the second goal the goal that clinches it is one of the most famous goals from this championship season so Kenny Swain wins the ball deep in the right back position runs it all the way up the right wing back heels it to Gary Shaw and Gary Shaw plays a lovely first time pass for the outside of his right yeah, it's foot it's a beautiful pass it's all yeah Dennis Mortimer as we talked about just goes screaming through the middle uh, one-on-one with, I guess, Clements it would have been then, wouldn't it? And, um, yeah, slides it in. And you can tell by his celebration, by the celebration in the ground, that's, it's a huge goal. You know, it, mean, it means more than 2-0 and we're going to win this game. It was, uh, it was a goal with a really, you know, profound impact on that whole campaign. I and think, I, think, you know. I think the two goals, in a way, are a, a perfect sort of representation of why this team was so good. Because you had, I mean that that with that with goal, like you said, the rebound. Have you ever seen anybody hit a ball so hard from two feet out in your life? Yeah. He absolutely wallops it. I don't know if he doesn't rip the post out of the ground when it hits the back yeah. of the net. 
which is kind of sum, sums up what With brought. And he brought more than that, but <coughs> it, that was important as well. And then that goal, as you just described, Mike, was kind of everything that, from watching all the highlights back on doing this, kind of represents every other bit of what this team were about, that fast, skillful ball on the floor, you know, you know, launching break sort of thing that they could do. And and crucially that that Mortimer, he did so many of those runs, Dennis Mortimer, and that that lovely bit of class from a, you know, toddler in Gary Shaw, basically. The, yeah. One of the joys of that goal is first of all, as you've said, that the the ball on the ground and Villa Park wasn't the worst surface in the country by any means, but pitches were were, were were tough in those days. So running with the ball like that, you need a bit of confidence and a bit of arrogance to be able to do it because you can get a bobble that can jump away off a divot and all this kind of stuff. But never for a moment did you think that was going to happen once uh, Shaw's beautiful pass goes through to Dennis Mortimer. But the other thing, and it, I, I think there's only a certain kind of football fan really feels this, is... Because if you're if you're a Manchester United fan or a Manchester City fan now, you just expect this sort of thing to happen and you shrug your shoulders at it. And if you've never had a team that you think are going to win regardless, um, then you don't get that feeling either. But if you're in that, that little bit in the middle where you know what it's like to be fragile, to have confidence fragile in your team, but you also know what it's like to have that sense of destiny that... that it's going to go our way regardless. And I don't want to overplay this or get too Freudian about it. <laughs> um, but once Shaw plays that ball and you see Mortimer breaking from the halfway line, you know it's going to be a goal. You know that ball is going in the net. And there's almost a kind of orgasmic anticipation waiting for the, for the net to, to bulge. And it seems when you're at the ground in particular, goals like that seem to last forever. It seems that, that it's, it, he's, he's running and running and running and running and the keeper's coming out and the ball gets slid past the keeper into the net. And it's, it's not like a, a kind of free kick bash in the back of the net or, or, or a, 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 a slam in or a tap in from two yards. There's a certain kind of goal that you get that anticipation. And maybe in real time, it's a couple of seconds, three or four seconds at most. But in match time, it feels like an age. And every moment of that age is just this lovely, warm feeling of here's a goal, here's a goal, here's a goal, and there's a goal. And I think that helps in making that goal such an iconic moment for Villa fans and for for anyone who who loves the game, you know, I think Mortimer was twenty nine. He'd been a journeyman. He'd been round the block. He has the wonder kid playing the ball uh, through to him, and the old man and captain of the sides. And you know, twenty nine was old in football terms uh, then. Um, he uh, he puts it home. You know, uh, it, it 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 is it is the the season as you say summed up uh, for Villa, and that it was. A very good Liverpool side, a European champion destined uh, Liverpool side that he was doing it to makes it all the sweeter for Villa fans and for uh, plenty of others. That right yeah, back didn't last though, did he, for <laughs> Liverpool? He didn't make it to the European Cup final. Who yeah. didn't? Yeah, the right back that Tony Morley made. Oh, yeah. Richard Money, I think he went off to <laughs> Fulham or did he get him from Fulham? And that, I think he was a big cheese in the PFA, but I may be wrong. Oh, right. 
There's a lovely, um, as you say, there's a lovely air of destiny about that. Yeah. Goal by Mortimer. And when he's running through as well, he's got so much time to think about that. So he's probably got time to take in the enormity of what this means if it goes in. And he's not just got that time as well, but all the fans have as well. (laughs) You know, if this goes in, we'll definitely beat Liverpool. And it's, um, it's very easy to fold in that moment, I think, as a player, but he, t- he takes the finish beautifully. And I, just a quick thing on the with goal, actually, is um, I love Peter With's goal celebrations because he always does that double fist pump in the air. You know, he's got the claret and blue armbands, wristbands on, sorry. You know, he's snarling, he's got teeth missing, he's got that big lumberjack <laughs> beard. He's this six foot two, you know, brawny striker is imagine playing it it must be yeah. such a hard afternoon like playing, playing against, against the, Peter like playing against a werewolf <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you just know he's going to be talking and shouting in an impenetrable scouse accent for 90 yeah. minutes non-stop but he um i mean he he's often referred to in this championship team as the the last piece of the jigsaw and there's there's definitely something very talismanic about peter with i think so when he does that double fist pump to the crowd it just seems to transmit, you know, Saunders' belief, his belief. You know, it it projects that to the fans. You know, we can do this, and we are doing it, and we're going to do it. And um, yeah, you if you're going to win championships, you know, if you're an unlikely team, you you definitely you need that kind of player, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of goals, a, a month later, ish, this happened. Just Williams. Tony Morley at Everton, Gary. Yes, well, I was in the uh, Gladys Street. So I was, if you like, behind uh, that goal. And um, it was three minutes into the game. You know, we were just settling down. And, you know, Villa produced the the goal of the season with, you know, three passes, or was it two passes, I think, down down the line. Uh, but Morley carries the ball, uh, and he's going at a hell of a speed by this time that he cuts inside. And, you know, you, you, you're looking to him to, you know, is he going to lay it off? Is he going to try a curler? What's he going to do? And he absolutely thunder, you know, what's it, into the uh, top, <laughs> top right-hand corner. The, the same... The same place where Rooney did his remember the uh, name goal. Uh, what would that be? That'd be thirty-one years or so uh, later, um, twenty-one years later. And um, it, 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 what I, I like most about that goal, and it struck me at the time, is that we we all knew, you know, there, there were scousers in this side. There was Ken McNaught as well, but you know, Mortimer, um, Tony Morley. Uh, Scousers, Ron Saunders, an ex-Everton player. So there was always a, a little bit of affinity, as, along with the kind of shared history and, and uh, the, the similar kind of uh, records in some ways that, you know, you, you looked not too much into Wikipedia, but you'd look into Rothmans then and you'd look at it's most not, FA It's Cup. not because you were bottom, is it, Gary? You were clinging <laughs> onto anything. <laughs> Well, you'd look into Rothmans, and if you were if you were like me, there's nothing you like more than sort of lists of, uh, of <laughs> champions, FA Cup winners or something, champions. And at that time, uh, on any of those lists of honours, Villa and Everton were 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 high up, but often they were sort of you know eighteen 
97, beating, you know, sort of old Carthusians in the final at Crystal Palace or something. So um, some of that history was uh, was e- ancient even then. So there was all that kind of um, hands across the aisle, so to speak, uh, towards Villa. And, of course, the schadenfreude of Villa being uh, one of the two likely to deny Liverpool the uh, championship. <laughs> never never uh, underestimate how that plays at Goodison Park. But Morley scored this goal. And maybe if it had been a last-minute winner, it would have been different. But in the third minute, we're only settling into it. You know, nobody had made a bad foul that we could sort of boo and become the the villain of the of the piece or anything like that. Um, and so the crowd saw this, and there was a kind of hush for what must have been a second or two. And Morley is is wheeling away, and he's he's giving it plenty to Ron Saunders on the bench, saying, "Hey, oh, you know, you were right to play me. You weren't going to drop me for Pat Hurd." <laughs> And so on, and then applause rang round the ground, and you know I definitely heard this as a, a, a rare thing, and it's a, probably a rare thing at, at most home grounds when an away side score a goal, and it was from every corner of the ground. It was just people applauded uh, the goal um, because it was one of those moments. We knew it was an iconic moment, and it it felt like it was you know, an iconic moment in what was going to be an iconic season. And, um, you know, it was great that it got to goal of the season because it, you know, it, it didn't go, as, to be fair, goal of the season didn't then. It was very much on merit. It wasn't, you know, for the, the glamour clubs and the glamour players. Uh, but it also meant that, you know, Tony Morley had something personal to mark this uh, this remarkable uh, couple of seasons that he played at uh, at Villa. Um, and it was great that it was on the match of the day cameras because it could easily have been missed. Mike's already mentioned that, you know, the, the 3-3 draw against Manchester United, not a camera in the ground. Uh, so it was lovely that it was captured and it was great that I was there to see that reaction um, from uh, Goodison Park as a whole. And uh, Tony Morley will have that forever and God, by God he deserves it. Who is it who plays the second pass? I can't quite see it from the footage. Oh, it's Gary Shaw. Is it Gary um, Shaw? He's dropped that deep, is he? Yeah, so he spins off uh, brilliantly, sort of, kind of turns around a defender in one movement, and then, yeah, he slides Morley through, and, yeah, Morley cuts in and lets that shot go. It's, um, I think it's in the first five minutes, this. so yeah, three, three minutes, minutes, I think it was. Yeah, yeah so there, there's... There, it's always a bit of a strange thing when a really great goal scored in the first few minutes of the game. There's almost a kind of, you know, no one's kind of settled into their seat yet, really. So it's a kind yeah, of, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's it it can be, you know, quite surprising for everyone in the ground. So it, initially it seems like a bit muted, but then you do hear, like, you know, this ripple of applause and obviously the Villa fans cheering. And um, yeah, an- think- another standout moment from this. Uh, I think you can tell so- that sort of like slight surprise because John Motson doesn't get anything like as worked up as he would normally do for yeah. a strike like that. He just goes, oh, oh, what, what, what a good goal sort of thing. Yeah. We're actually, uh, and I think there is, because I, I interviewed Andrew Cotter, the the uh, commentator, and he talked about- And dog you, owner. Yes, a dog owner now, yeah. And a really nice bloke, actually. And, and how he talks about how commentators move through gears through a game and you can't go too big too early because otherwise you end up screaming by the 20th minute. When only yeah, he's got nowhere to go. Yeah. yeah, and he was... And, and I suppose Motson's very, still very much in it. I'm just putting it into first gear now. Mm. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, oh, shit, this has happened, sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas, and yeah, it's, it's interesting how the commentator's sort of craft works on things like that. So you're right, Mike, I think. The crowd, the commentator, everybody was... A, wasn't quite ready for something like yeah. that to happen. Uh, uh, just yeah. a, a 
comment there on on Gary Shaw playing the through ball because we've we've talked twice now of of iconic goals, both of which Gary Shaw mm. these days will get the assist. No, nobody talked that way then, but both are fantastic passes, and you know he's in his first season. He was what nineteen years old. You said Mike, and he scores nineteen goals, and nineteen goals then was a big return but he's also playing passes like that and you know i think we we recognize now um something that was becoming clear a couple of years ago that harry kane in in the uh, premier league is not just the best number nine he's also the best number 10 because he can pass the ball as well as uh, get on the end of goals uh, get on the end of uh, moves to score goals and it's just remarkable that that Gary Shaw at 19 was able to do both of these things, score the kind of goals, and we talked about that in the last episode, um, but also play these these through passes, the assist, the vision, and the strength to hold off being kicked up in the air because the tackle from behind was coming at you in those days over and over again. And in the first half, the referee was, now don't be such a naughty boy, Mr. Centre-half, as as the forward is writhing around on the ground, having been kicked up in the air uh, with no no notice. Um, So if you do nothing else after this uh, podcast, go and have a look at those two goals and see the lost genius of Gary Shaw. Yeah, it's a real, I don't know, testament. He's such a natural footballer, isn't he? You know, yeah. to have that kind of touch and awareness and to have it at 19 as well. And I think he turned 20 at, at some point um, in this season. But um, mm. yeah, what a player. And yeah, just to sort of finish off on the Villa game, there's... Another really nice Mortimer goal in this, um, which puts Villa two on up. Which uh, again they they spring they spring the high line. Mortimer bursts through onto a long ball and then goes round. I don't know who your keeper would have been then, Gary. Sorry, probably Jim but, Arnold would be my guess. Yeah, and, and goes round him and puts it in. Yep, three one away win, and it's part of a run actually of so from the the Liverpool game on the tenth of January, Villa win seven in a row. Uh, they then have a kind of epic three-all draw with United at Villa Park in the March and then lose to Tottenham. But they win their next three games as well. And within that, there's two quite significant games, one away to Wolves and one at home to West Brom, where they're both won with uh, Peter With goals in the last 10 minutes of the game. So these huge kind of you know goals that secure these very tight 1-0 victories. And it's, it's victories Counting like that. Just, yeah, but they're, they're so important in, in championship wins. You know, They just keep the momentum going when it looks like it might be about to stall. Um, you know, That's so important for any team when they win a league, I think. And the, the final one of those, the, the West Brom um, uh, 1-0 in April, then sets Villa up for a pretty uh, epic clash at Villa Park with um, Ipswich. Which, in keeping with every other match versus Ipswich in this season, they managed not to win. Um, they, they won the league, but managed not to win against Villa, uh, against Ipswich at any point in this season. So the 14th of April is when Ipswich kids came to town. Another point about that, the, the players, before we get to that, the players make a point, though, you make the point, you mentioned those games there, uh, Mike, around you know, Wolves and, and West Brom, which mm. are not traditional derbies, are they? But the players themselves make a point about people forget how many kind of really emotional derby-type games you've got to play as a West Midlands club. And they had loads of them in this season, Villa. 
um, yeah. that we had to contend with. Yeah, I think because it's... I don't know, the history of football in, in England, often it's often told very north-south, isn't it? So I think mm. a, a lot of people who maybe, I guess, you know, make comment on English football, they maybe not have the handle on, you know, what those games mean in that area if they're if they're not uh, not from there. I mean, it's so, I mean I'd, I'd count myself in that as well. You know, I'm not I'm not from that area, so I, I I don't know what would go into your you know a game between Villa and Wolves. I don't I don't know you know everything about you know the the backstory and things like that. But um, if every single Villa player has made that point, and they, they make it in reference to Ipswich, don't they? In yeah. the um, that Ipswich is only derby that season was Norwich, and I think Norwich took four points off Ipswich, which is eventually the four points that you know you could argue cost. And, Ip- and Ipswich Norwich is lose. fifty-five miles away from Ipswich. That's the other thing that people forget. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, Villa's record in these in these Midlands derbies is, is brilliant this season. Um, I th- they, they only drop a few points, I think, um, in them all, and it, it yeah, it's uh, it's a point. Um, I'm not sure if we made this on the last pod or not, but uh, you know, Wenger brought this up when he came to England, mm. didn't he? About um, that yeah, he had to he play did, ten yeah. ten derbies this season. But you know, then you you know they were rivals with United. Then you you know United have some very intense games in the northwest. You know, they're, they're not derbies in terms of you know you come from the same city, but you know Gary will testify as well. You know, the, the, there is a lot of feeling in the the Everton United games. Mm. Uh, but I think the point he was trying to sure. make was that no, we didn't beat Ipswich, but we did have to win all these other games that were unbelievably emotionally quite difficult and and had lots riding on them, not just for the league but locally and for our fans and and for us. And I think it's a reasonable point to make, really. And they also yeah. make the point that Ipswich, have, you know, I think at one point, I think it's Tony Morley or somebody says people forget how many international Ipswich had, and we didn't have any. Well, and that, going, that's another much bigger question about why not, you know. But going into this game, I mean, Ipswich were in the semi-finals of the uh, UEFA Cup and they were just about to beat Cologne and get to the quarter-final a month before this they knocked out St Etienne they won they won 4-1 away at St Etienne this is Michel Platini's St Etienne <laughs> um, and I think they knocked them out of the UEFA Cup in the quarters on aggregate 7-2 something like that and uh, yeah we're, we're laden with uh, international players uh, and you know we're the, we're the favourites for the uh, Titles and by beating Villa, actually, would 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 be in the box seat in the you know with four or five games to go. So uh, yeah, it was quite a feat for Villa to haul them in. It really was. And after losing this game, oh, sorry, I'll just come on this. Uh, do you want to make a point about that, Gary? Before I come on about well, that? I, I I just think there's a there's a tremendous parallel story in this season about Ipswich, and um, you know I think we should cover that in a in a future pod. Uh, because it was truly extraordinary. We're eulogising the Villa players and the, and the Villa season, uh, but it's not at the expense of uh, recognising just how good uh, Ipswich were. And I won't say unfortunate, because you don't win a lucky title, and this was not a lucky title, but there were a set of circumstances which will seldom arise uh, in, the, in the future with a, a small provincial club um, going on on three fronts, and uh, at forefronts, to say, if you count the international football that the Ipswich players uh, were required to play, um, and that's that's a future part, and I think we'll we'll very much enjoy uh, covering a side that deserves the uh, Ness and Dorma treatment. Mm. Hmm. 
So they the also loose- uh, oh, they oh, spent oh. the summer of no, sorry they spent the summer of nineteen eighty some of their players starring in Escape to Victory. So you know oh, you could oh, yes, argue they was- didn't have the summer off either. Yeah, that very emotionally <laughs> draining having to work for John Houston. Yeah. <laughs> so um. And of course, that has that escapes the victory has had the Nessundorma treatment. If you want to go yes. and listen to that, yeah. everybody. Um, so they lose that game to Ipswich, and that this was the kind of key moment that the players pull out. Where after the game, Ron Saunders was completely relaxed and was just like, "Yeah, you're still going to win it. Don't worry. You know, don't don't let this result trouble you. We, we go on." And of course, they did go on, and they beat Middlesbrough on the 25th of April, three 0 at Villa Park. And your point. Um, uh, Gary, that then the week after, which is the final week of the season, when Ipswich had to play Middlesbrough, Ipswich lose to Middlesbrough, um, and that point around, any team could beat any team, and it yeah. was more likely at that point. But Villa won their first league title in seventy-one years by losing, um, and the players are very sheepish and almost ashamed at how badly they played and trying to say it was nothing to do with the occasion; we just played badly. But I don't know about that. Um, it was Arsenal, wasn't it? It was 2-0 mm. at Arsenal. Yeah. yeah, and you kind of, uh, you know, maybe this is me being metropolitan-centric or something, but you, you, you're you in London as a player. Um, you've obviously got, you know, sort of family and friends and everything because you're going to win the title. Um, your fans are in London. You want to go off into sort of uh, string fellows or whatever they, whatever they go uh, with a skip in their <laughs> step. But instead, it, it does finish on a little bit of a downer. Um, having been turned over by Arsenal. But, you know, as the players say, but it always takes a little bit of of sort of recognition that the, the title is won over 42 games, not over the 42nd game. Um, but you can imagine there was a lot of kind of planning and what we're going to do and, you know, night, and, night out and the smoke and everything. And, you know, it, it, it will have sort of dampened down some of that. But it takes nothing away from the achievement. Of course it doesn't. Yeah, actually, going into that um, that weekend of the second of May, so that the Arsenal game that was that was Villa's final game of the season, but it was Ipswich actually had two games left, so they played um, Middlesbrough that day on the second of May and lost, and that meant the title gone. But they had a game after that as well against oh, yeah. um, Southampton. But so because of the density of fixtures. Um, and, and all the cup runs they've been on, and this this happened quite a lot in those days as well, particularly with teams that would go on these Homeric cup runs with you know lots of replays and things. Is that the league wouldn't always finish on the same day for teams? Um, this is obviously, and, and this is before as well. You know, uh, the eighty two World Cup, and you know what happened with Algeria and all of this kind of uh, thing. So it, it, the era of you know everything finishing concurrently. Um, wasn't really yet upon us, so it's it it could have been the case that you know had Ipswich beaten Middlesbrough, um, the the Villa players would have then had an eleven day wait mm-hmm. to see if uh, see if Ipswich would then beat uh, Southampton. I mean they didn't do, but you know that that would have been a very different game mm-hmm. had results gone the other way. And it, it it I think it is worth making the point again about um, the competitive depth of the league because the week before Ipswich had played Middlesbrough. Villa absolutely battered them three nil. I mean, it, it it's you know it could have been you know five six seven. It was a devastating performance, and you think with well, Villa are doing that to them, you know, what what are Ipswich going to do to them? You know, another team at the top of the league, but you know Middlesbrough Middlesbrough turned them over, and those kind of things. Um, 
I'm not saying they happened all the time then, but there was... Uh, it was more eminently I, possible than... Yeah, yeah I, exactly, I, yeah. I, I can't see Ron Saunders saying, I'll tell you what, they've got to go to Middlesbrough and get something out of that game, and I'd love it, yeah. I'd love it. I, I don't think, uh, I don't think Ron, Ron Saunders loved sort of anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, um, I think, a good point to make, actually, is that after the, the Ipswich defeat, Ron Saunders almost did... It's like, a, it's like a reverse Keegan, in a way. So John Motson's interviewing him, <laughs> After the game, um, I think it's John Motson, and he says to Ron Saunders, so, so do you still think you've got a chance? And Saunders fixes him with those you know, very narrow eyes and just says, I think so. Do you want to bet against us? And then there's just this, there's this dead air for two seconds. And so, so, Thanks, Ron. Bye. <laughs> and that's the end of the interview. There are few football managers who created as much dead air as Ron Saunders. <laughs> <laughs> he loved yeah. that. It's quite yeah, difficult absolutely. to move the conversation on after that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the Gordon Cowens says about this. He's, he actually said this, and I, I wrote it down because I was so kind of shocked. He said, "He said we didn't win the league. Middlesbrough won it for us." Yeah. And I thought, God, what a terrible way to view such a, a, a great season, especially when you know Ipswich. We've already mentioned, I think Ipswich lost three of the last four matches, and you know this isn't the Super Bowl. You know, this is not a. You know, we 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 all like to see a grandstand finish, but a forty-two game season isn't one on any one any one Saturday, is it? Whether that's a, the first Saturday, a Saturday in the middle, or or the one right at the end, which is the kind of beauty of it, really. Although do, I can understand th- the disappointment of the result and all that. Do you think he was being a little bit tongue in cheek about that? That you know he would have had that. It's hard to read his face. I think Birmingham <laughs> fans. Yeah, it, it, it is hard, but you know the the. The Blues Villa uh, rivalry is is pretty intense. We've already talked about the the sort of derbies, but I think uh, Birmingham City fans and Villa fans, you know, often live in the same street and you know work in the same places. I think uh, I think a few Villa players and Villa fans have heard that uh, a few times that it was uh, Middlesbrough's I title see. that yeah. they that they handed across to 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 Villa with. Uh, uh, beat the defeat in the first hand, and then the victory over Ipswich with the second. So there might have been a little bit of that, of that going on uh, there. But maybe you know, maybe it, maybe it got to him. Maybe hearing it so often means that he starts believing it too. But it was not uncommon, uh, as you say, in in those days, Mike. The 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 kind of Super Sunday where all the matches are played concurrently is relatively new. Uh, innovation by that I mean probably in the last ten years, but you know I can remember Leeds winning the title where they're all sitting on uh, a, a sofa watching it in shell suits and uh, David Batty saying, "Well, it's a bonus, isn't it?" And sort of Cantona looking out of place uh, there, and you know there were there were titles won where the manager was on the golf course, I think, and getting the result. And there's there's Liverpool winning a title, I, I think, where um, they're they're, they're in uh, La Manga or something, aren't they? So um, there, there were strange ways in which seasons were concluded, uh, often messily. And um, although sometimes I and sometimes we rail against some of the innovations of modern football, certainly bringing the season to a concurrent uh, climax with all matches played at the same time is obviously better from both the sporting uh, dimension in terms of avoiding any jiggery or even pokery, uh, but it's also better as a spectacle for fans, I think. So the season ends, they've won it. Peter Witt scored 20 goals. Gary Shaw scored 19 goals. There's all kinds of, you know, Ben Mortimer got 
four goals, I think, and a few others. But that brings it to an end. First win in 71 years. And of course, then they go on to a European Cup the year after, which we're going to talk about now. Into 1982, then, we go. Um, well, 81, 82, sorry. But, um, and it's Aston, Aston Villa's first... Is it the first run at the European Cup? Well, first ever one, yeah. Yeah, yeah 71 it, years ago, it wasn't... Uh, of course, there, yeah. yeah. I've just said that. Yeah. So, the old European Cup format, Mike, for people who don't remember, because it wasn't, you know, all leagues and nonsense then, what was it? Well, champions only from every single association, uh, lumped into a, you know, a bag, a la Graham Kelly in the FA Cup draw, you know, completely open draw as well. Um, and you just you just played it through until someone won, basically. So, uh, yeah, very, um, very nope. simple format. And, uh, An open draw which drew Liverpool versus Nottingham Forest in their first European season, don't forget, in the first yes. round. So it could happen. Yeah, and later on, um, Real Madrid and Napoli, which uh, is the point at which everyone said, oh, we can't have any more of this. <laughs> this can't uh, possibly happen anymore, yeah. Yeah, we need to create you know, what's effectively a European Super League. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge, uh, obviously, difference between the competition then as now. But I, I do think it's uh, worth reflecting on Okay, yes, it wasn't flooded with you know Spanish and Italian and English teams. It was it was the champions from each country, but you know that's quite a high bar to clear to get in it initially. Anyway, you know you yes. have to win your own uh, your own championship, and yeah, and with the draw being completely uh, you know random, it had a lovely element of jeopardy to it as well. Um, you know the whole the whole thing with away goals, that all comes from European football because, you know, especially when it started in the 50s, you know, you were going to places where, you know, you didn't know anything about these teams that you were playing or, you know, any of the players that you were going to come up against. And and that was still a factor in 81, 82, particularly, and this happens a couple of times to Villa on their run, uh, when they go to Eastern Europe, you know, they pop... uh, pop behind the curtain for games and that that's why away goals is such a such a huge you know factor in European football I mean it, it's well certainly this season now there's no fans in at all it's it's almost been made uh, made redundant the whole, the whole thing wants scrapping now but I can understand how it was something back in the day it was just a, a, a bit that you've alluded to, but I do think it's important, um, particularly for uh, some younger listeners, well, even the older listeners might need to remember this, is that it was before the breakup of the Soviet Union, the breakup of countries like Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. So when you get drawn against the Czechoslovakian champions, you're, you're being drawn against the best footballers in the Czech Republic now and, and in Slovakia. Uh, when you're up against uh, the Yugoslav champions, you're up against Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, um, and and. I can't, I can't go through all the, the republics Bosnia, now. Bosnia. You're playing against the Russian Empire uh, when you're playing against the Russian champions who were often very heavily uh, Ukrainian. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, it's, a, it's an open draw. It's the champions of each association plus the champions of the uh, European Cup of the previous season. Um, but um, what looked like 
Uh, of course, the other thing I ought to say is that the East European footballers were often held in Eastern Europe. There were some that came through. The the big stars who made it in, in the World Cup would often get uh, allowed out to, to play in Italy and sometimes in, in England. We were, I think we mentioned uh, Dana and uh, uh, there was later on the likes of Boban and, and, and others. But um, these these European East European teams were not the kind of uh, half-hearted uh, teams that you see these days these were full-on competitive teams who could beat anybody and uh, i think that was an important part of the uh, european cup experience it was it was often a kind of shaky picture and it was <laughs> alan weeks you know commentating <laughs> number seven plays it to number nine and all of this uh, down the line from uh, eastern europe but these were serious footballers they were they were up against uh, there and it's wrong to say there were no bad teams in the European Cup. There were always going to be teams from what were authentically minnows there because they simply didn't have the population base in order to produce the standard of football required. But there were a lot of competitive games, even in an open draw. Yeah, I mean, if it, so just to touch on that point, I mean, it's so in the first round, Villa get drawn against uh, Valour, who are the champions of Iceland. You know, purely amateur team. And that it, it has got that... FA Cup element to it of, you know, the big team uh, going to play the non-league side at their tiny little ground and, you know, there being a BBC feature on the cottage industry in that town and all that kind of... Um... More people work for Iceland than live in Iceland, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, that was one of But you you are right about the, the standard of... Uh, Teams. It's before the era of you know European super clubs, where even even if teams did have you know players from other countries, you were only allowed one or two um, at most. And often when you played the champions from certain countries, you were effectively playing you know six or seven of the international team from that country as well. So it's um, yeah. And the East I, I, Europeans, we should say, they put a lot of emphasis on European uh, on Olympic football. So. Their their players were inverted commas amateur, but they were to all extents mm. and purposes uh, they were uh, professionals, and they were often highly prepared professionals because although they didn't make a huge mark in the uh, World Cup, these these were serious footballers who were aimed at European uh, aimed at Olympic glory rather than at World Cup glory. So the you just mentioned Mike they got ice they got Valour of Iceland and tonked them seven nil over two legs in the first in the first round round two takes yeah. them to to Dynamo Berlin in East Germany. Yeah, two oh, the away leg um, is where they effectively secure the victory in this. There's two brilliant goals from Tony Morley in this. Um, one on the volley, um, it, which is in like the first five minutes. Uh, Dynamo Berlin then equalised. Then Jimmy Rimmer saves a penalty and saves the rebound as well, which is a bit of a butterfly wings moment in this entire tie because uh, Morley then gets the the winning goal where he breaks the entire length of the pitch. In the eighty fifth minute, by the way, eighty fifth <laughs> minute. Yeah, so it's one of those wonderful goals where um, they clear a corner, I think, Villa, and the ball bounces over the head of a Dynamo Berlin player, and Morley just screams past him. And it's one of those things where you can't see what's left of you on the screen. So you think, well, there'll be a couple of centre-halves there, won't there, to stop it. But there's, a- there's actually no one between him and the goal. And he sprints the entire length of the uh, 
the pitch and tucks it away. It's a fantastic goal. And but then, the gas, um, the gas he shows with the ball on eighty-five minutes in the tricky away fixtures we've just alluded to, and he, and even though there was no centre halves in the way, you'd expect some chasers to get near him because he's running with the yeah. ball. But they just don't. He just keeps either either going away from them or, or keeping far enough away from them. They can't catch him. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a just, fa- I was going to say, you just look at that goal and you can appreciate how flattened Morley must have been. He scores a goal like that in international football in those circumstances, but you're not good enough to get in the 22 to go to the World Cup at the end of that season. I mean, it's just farcical. 33-year-old Trevor Brookin was available, though, so why not? You know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we have time to go through that, but yeah, it was yeah. a disgrace, yeah. No, so um, yeah, they then, they then go back to uh, Villa Park a couple of weeks later and they actually lose the game 1-0. Uh, so they they only just about get through on away goals, and it requires a brilliant uh, save from Rimmer from uh, Tuletsky in the second half, where he tips a shot onto the post from point blank range. Otherwise, otherwise that would have been filler out of the tournament. Um, and yeah, Dynamo Berlin were really difficult side because you got to remember with some of these teams that they would come up against as well, they would they would often win their leagues for you know three four years in a row. So they would play in the European Cup every year. So they would become you know, battle hardened in the top level of European competition. So in the the preliminary round, Dynamo Berlin actually knocked out Saint Etienne. Um and we you know we, we mentioned them earlier Michelle on Platt in relation to which is... <laughs> Yeah, exactly that. And uh yeah, I hate the way people look back at this era of European Cup football now and say, oh, well there was only one Spanish team and only one Italian team, yeah. so it must have been easy to win. But if you look at what happened to those teams in this competition. So Juventus were the champions of Italy and Real Sociedad were the champions of Spain and they were both knocked out by CSKA Sofia, who were the champions of Bulgaria. And they got all the way to the semi-finals and, you know, took Bayern Munich quite close. So it's uh, this idea that there was no depth in the competition in terms of quality beyond, you know, Italy, Spain, England, France and Germany is, is nonsense. Yeah, well and still, said, And you still had a really good UEFA Cup, didn't you? Because all of those next level teams mm. who are now in the Champions League, which apparently makes Champions League so amazing, were in the were in the UEFA Cup, weren't they? Which, well, it which it said, said a lot that, about Ipswich's victory the year before. It was often said that the UEFA Cup was as strong a competition, and in some instances stronger, because teams in the European Cup were sometimes on the way down, having won their championship, whereas teams in the mm. UEFA Cup were often on the way up and uh, on the way to a, a title. You know, they'd finished third the previous season and were going to finish first uh, in the current season, which meant in the current season they were playing in the UEFA Cup. I, mean, I just think it was a... You know, both competitions were, were very strong and uh, say there were structural reasons for, for that. Uh, and you never... You never wanted to go away in February or something and play against a big red machine, which is what the uh, the Iron Curtain sides were often uh, dubbed. And uh, yeah, and you know, some of these teams were not scouted because you know you couldn't get visas and go to these countries uh, particularly easily, and there was no videotapes or anything like that. So sometimes you were going out there and you knew very little about the opposition. You know, you might have read a Brian Glanville piece in World Soccer indicating that, you know, Sophia's exciting number seven shirt was one to be uh, to be feared. But, um, 
you know, you you were often going in blind, uh, sometimes literally so with the quality of the floodlights, and uh, you had to to deal with it. Yeah. Can I just sort of just I need to uh, clarify something I said quickly. Here. So CSK Sofia, they actually knocked out Real Sociedad and Liverpool in the quarters who were the defending champions. <laughs> Juventus were knocked out by Anderlecht, who Villa would play in the semi-finals, and this is an Anderlecht team who. Between 75 and 84, they got to five European competition yeah. finals and had most of the Belgian international team, uh, quite a number of those great Danish players from the early to mid-80s as well. So, you know, they were a serious European side then. I mean, now they're cannon fodder in the group stages of the Champions League, aren't they? But um, it was very different then. Yeah. So that's in November that they that Villa it, to say squeeze through against Dynamo Berlin seems to suggest that it was seems to do it down a bit, but I don't mean that. I mean that in the best possible way, and that they they got through a really tricky tie thanks to a couple of great goals, some good goalkeeping, and then hanging on for dear life against again in a difficult tie for everything we've just talked about because of everything we just talked about. There's then the break, isn't there? Because there's two rounds and you're into the quarterfinals in the old format. It's important to make that point. There's then the break when they, you know, rather carelessly lose their manager. Uh, well, yeah, this is what a point to leave. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you look, look back on this this decision with a, a, a tremendous amount of regret, Ron Saunders. But uh, yeah, so in the February of 82, uh, months before the quarterfinals, uh, Ron Saunders was renegotiating his contract with Villa. And um, I remember hearing Andy Gray talk about this once. Apparently he was obsessed with having a three-year rolling contract. The idea being, so every day you wake up, you've got three day, uh, three years left on your contract. <laughs> and the club uh, wouldn't give it to him, the board. of the, it's, it's the pre-Doug Ellis era. I think Doug Ellis comes in in 84. But um, the club wouldn't, you know... Uh, give in to his demands and um, it became a bit of brinksmanship and Saunders eventually resigned um, that month and was replaced by Tony Barton who was his assistant manager Um, and Saunders not only left he was immediately picked up by Birmingham City um, (laughs) which what a shit house trick that was. <laughs> well, you can imagine how, how that would have played. And then one of one of his first games as Birmingham manager actually was, you know, as the the chuckling fixture list would have it, was, you know, at Villa Park, <laughs> um, which Villa won. And, um, you know, he got uh, pelters, I believe they say, from the uh, <laughs> from the Villa, uh, Villa crowd for that. But, um, yeah, so the decision to bring in Bart, you know, effectively promoting Bart to full-time manager, he'd never, he'd never managed any other club before but as I think we touched on in the first pod he was not just the assistant manager he's the chief scout at Villa as well so he had been responsible for putting this this team together so it was it wasn't a guy coming in with completely new ideas and wanting to rip it up and start it again he he effectively kept everything in place that they'd been working on so um I mean I probably wasn't entirely seamless i mean nothing nothing ever is when you you know you change managers like that but it, it would probably be as close to seamless as you could get in those circumstances i would say he was kind of he's kind of the peter taylor that nobody talks about tony barton isn't he in some ways and arguably was was more successful because he obviously picks this team up and goes on to win this 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 competition i mean obviously he didn't work with clough so nobody you know it's much easier to write about brian clough than ron saunders as we've uh as we've alluded to before, and anybody associated with Saunders isn't going to get the same um, spotlight put on them as 
as, as Taylor would, would have done. But Forrest achieved something utterly remarkable with Clough and Taylor, and Taylor was that scout like Barton was. However, you know, let's not forget that Clough wasn't afraid to throw a shitload of money around, almost, you know, in, in defiance of his board and, and dared them to sort of not back him, really. You know, think about Trevor Francis is the obvious example, but he's not the only one. Whereas actually Barton, along with Saunders, more quietly built this team with a brilliant scouting record and didn't achieve two European Cups, of course, but did achieve one. And it just plays in again, we're not going to talk about it too much, I think it just plays in again the whole nobody pays enough attention to the achievements of this team and the characters around it, really. I think part of the problem is that Tony Barton was... he. He fell into a certain type. It's almost in the name Tony Barton as much as, <laughs> as anything else. You know, it, it's often parodied by by um, Monty Python and, and others. You can just imagine Tony Barton being played by Michael Palin uh, when they, they have that sketch where uh, he says, but I want to be a lion tamer. I want to be a lion oh, tamer. Beauty. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, sir, uh, our psychological profiling shows that you are much better suited to chartered accountancy. <laughs> and you just get this feeling that Tony Barton was much better suited than being, to being a, a chief scout. You know, that sort of slightly shady figure on the touchline. And people are looking and saying, well, who's that? What's, what's he writing in his book? Um, even now, I'm struggling to place his face. So he was such... A, a kind of anonymous kind of figure who who steps forward uh, reluctantly, unexpectedly into this limelight, who never courts it, and certainly didn't have the presence of Peter Taylor, who was a hulking man with that steely grey hair, who we knew was sitting next to uh, Clough on the touchline, giving, giving it exactly uh, back to Clough what he was getting from Clough. And indeed, the the feuds on and off uh, or in and out of the club showed that. But Barton was just this this guy who, who maybe did or did not want to be a lion tamer, but was certainly more suited to being a chartered accountant. But there he is. Uh, pick up the reins here. We're on our way to the European Cup final. What can you do? And uh, extraordinarily... Um, he rose to the occasion and fair play to him. Absolutely fair play to him. And fair play to the players who didn't go off and sulk, didn't go off and think we've been sold down the river by Big Ron. I bet half of them expected it because there was nothing Ron Saunders enjoyed more than an immovable force meeting an irresistible object or whatever. Irresistible force meeting an immovable object. <laughs> and you know, the Villa boardroom was and always has been pretty dysfunctional. Um, so yeah, I guess half of them had a bit of an inkling about it. None of them would have been that surprised, I suspect, knowing his character. Uh, but there's the, the, the chief scout um, stepping up, and all of a sudden, you know, he's he's got to instill this uh, belief in the players. But perhaps it was so established by that point, and perhaps destiny was sort of tapping them on the shoulder or whatever that expression from Tony Blair was, um, that, that it didn't matter so much. But, uh, but yeah, extraordinary set of circumstances. Imagine it today. Imagine it. And then, so his first job, then you talk about difficult away legs. His first kind of job in this competition, Tony Barn, is to take his team to the USSR to play mm. Dynamo Kiev in March, Mike. Yeah, so this was uh, Kiev's first match after their winter break, um, and, and a winter break in Russia or in the Soviet Union, or Kiev would be in the Ukraine, wouldn't it? Um, mm. You know, it's a different thing to, you know, <laughs> a 10-day yeah. winter break. It's not just break. to have a rest, is it? It's because, <laughs> no, because no. you're three foot deep in ice and snow. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, they actually moved the the game. It's played hundreds of miles south of Kiev. It's in, uh, I'll try and get this right, Simferopol, I think yeah. it's called, in, in the Crimea. Um, and there's lots of stories that have come out of this away leg of, you know, you would hear these kind of things about, you know, when you go and play in Eastern Europe, the kickoff time has changed. Uh, they switched hotels on Villa at the last minute um, and all this kind of, this, this idea that, you know, that they were trying to be unsettled by their opposition. But um, they got the they got the result they were looking for. They got a nil-nil draw. And it's something to say about this run, actually. I think Villa kept seven clean sheets in the nine games. So, um Absolutely watertight at the back on this run. And then uh, yeah, got them back to Villa Park. And this is effectively the, the victory that's, that secured Barton the job full time, um, as I understand it. So he took over on a caretaker basis initially. And then uh, after winning this match, he got the job full time. So yeah, Villa win the home leg 2 0 on a, it has to be said, an absolutely scandalous pitch. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I was reading, uh, there's a great blog on this uh, run by um, Steve Pye. Um, he, he writes lots of great long reads about um, 1980s football. And uh, in his piece, he said uh, that, that March was, uh, I think it was the heaviest recorded rainfall in the history of the Midlands or something like that. So the, the pitch was completely waterlogged. And the grounds people at Villa Park just packed it down with sand. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, it was kind of beach football in March in... Uh, in, in, in Birmingham and um, yeah Billy get through so Gary Shaw scores somehow gets gets a shot in at the near post from almost adjacent to the goal line it just seems to go through the goalkeeper and then Ken McNaught nods in the second that effectively secures their uh, their passage through to the uh, the semi-finals which um, has a hint of the English disease about it Um in the in the away leg, doesn't it? Tony Morley scores in the home leg. And then yeah, one. Sorry. Oh, yeah, go on, Mike. Talk yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, Morley scores. I mean, again, another another wonderful goal. I mean, he. We talked in the first um, part about, you know, you couldn't really pin the championship on on one particular player, but in, in I think in this cup run, I mean, Morley made such a huge difference that. You know, he's so many goals he scored. I think he scored five in the whole run, and he's involved in so many key moments as well. So, um, yeah, he scores a great goal in this, which gives him a very narrow victory. Um, so, to go and uh, defend a one 0 lead in Belgium a couple of weeks later, and uh, yeah, sadly, f- um, fighting and you know rioting on the terraces. I think the game was abandoned for seven minutes. Lots of arrests, lots of injuries. You know, it feels like a horrible um, precursor, I think, given, you know, um, what where would, it is. What would come. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, Anderlecht lodged an appeal after this game. So the the, the away leg finished um, nil-nil. So, so Villa went through to the final 1-0 on aggregate. But whether they actually would play the final was in balance for quite a few weeks, actually, after this game. Because um, Anderlecht lodged an appeal with um, UEFA to see if they could get the game replayed. Or, or even if... Or you forfeited. Know, yeah. Or forfeited, yeah. Um, what eventually happened was UEFA fined um, Villa £14,000, I think it was, 
And uh, for the following season or the next time they played in Europe, their first game would have to be behind closed doors. So, um, yeah, they were allowed to play in the final Villa, but it sounds like it was quite a close run thing. Um, and yeah, and, and even up, up to I think about three weeks before the final, they didn't, they were, they couldn't be sure that they were going to be able to play in it. Imagine the chat in the in the factories and the car plants and all that stuff that would have been going around about that at the time. Imagine if it was Twitter now, people fuming about UEFA not making a decision and stuff. It's amazing mm. to think, isn't it? Really, I mean, a, a remarkable season made even more remarkable. Really, Gary. I mean, I uh, you wonder at the patience of UEFA and whether it was was actually um, misused. I mean, it wasn't just English fans who who caused problems in European uh, matches. Uh, they weren't alone. But the so many of the runs of English club sides uh, have this punctuation mark somewhere along along the line. And you know the, the the patience that UEFA showed in in not banning uh, English clubs is is remarkable, really, because the English clubs kept winning the damn thing, and yet they still had these and you kicking know, the shit out of them in every city they went into. Yeah, you know, why didn't why didn't UEFA just say sod off for three years, sort yourself out, and come back? You know, maybe that would have been you know the identity cards that. Mrs. Thatcher You're waiting for Everton to win the title. Is what well, maybe, doing, Gary. maybe that was it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> that was it. Not that uh, us, blue, us blues are bitter in any way. Um, but you, know, it, you, you look back on it and you just feel like someone should have got a bloody grip on it and said, you've got two years or three years to sort yourselves out, come back uh, and uh, once you've done it. And I, 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 Twitter notwithstanding or populist governments around Europe notwithstanding you have to think that there was just too much patience there was too much fraternity I think and uh, it rewarded us football fans with some great great matches and obviously Villa with a, a European Cup but um, you know, looking back on it it was wrong I think uh, the smack of firm government as Thatcher uh, one of Thatcher's phrases might have gone down well here uh, piss off sort yourself out and come back when you're ready um, thankfully for Villa, their next match wasn't at home in Europe because it was the final. So it was in Rotterdam, so they didn't have to play that behind closed doors where they came up against Bayern Munich. Um, it's probably worthwhile just running through the teams quickly because it's it's worth reflecting on this, this Villa team compared to the one that we went through for the Championship the year before. So the Villa team was Jimmy Rimmer, Kenny Swain, Ken McNaught, Alan Evans, Gary Williams... That's the defence. Dennis Morton. Gary Williams was great in this tournament, actually, all the way through. Lots of Mm -hmm. it from left back. Really, really nice. And then midfield of Dennis Mortimer. It was a 4-3-3. So midfield of Dennis Mortimer, Gordon Cowens, and Des Bremner as the holding player still. And then the three forwards were Peter With, Tony Morley, and Gary Shaw. And um, crucially, Nigel Spink on the bench, which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, A young, very young Nigel Spink. Just Just for... Um, completeness. The Real, the Bayern Munich team was goalkeeper Manfred Müller, and then the defence: Wolfgang Dremler, Hans Weiner, Klaus Argenthaler, Udo Horsman. Midfield was Reinhold Matti, Wolfgang Kraus, Paul Bretner, Bernd Dernberger, Dieter Hernes, and then the legendary Karl Heinz Rummenigge up front as well. So no mugs this Bayern Munich team at all. Champions of Germany. Um, do you want to tell us of the Nigel Spink story, Mike? 
Yeah, well, this is amazing. Um, so uh, on the Tuesday, so the final was on a Wednesday night then. So the, the Tuesday before Villa were training and Jimmy Rimmer uh, ricked his neck. Um, uh, so uh, somehow, I think just um, like jumping for a ball or something like that. Uh, and was in such pain that um, he, he had to take loads of painkillers to try and dull it down. He he passed a late fitness test the next day on the day of the game itself. But I'd love to um, see the veracity of that test, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> so so they they put him out there for the final. But after nine minutes, he just had to give up on it and um, and come off. So that meant that Nigel Spink, um, twenty three years old at this point. Uh, and who'd only played once before for Villa, um, and that was three years earlier on Boxing Day in 1979 against Forest, um, came on, you know, for in in a European Cup final. Um, you know, this is a keeper Villa had signed from non-league uh, Chelmsford City. Um, I think sort of five years earlier. People always so, talk about this, don't they? It's been like the stuff of childhood dreams. But I imagine when, that moment when they say, "Nigel, you're going on," it probably feels like a childhood nightmare. Because the terror must be like, oh shit, maybe yeah. it wasn't that, but there must be a bit of oh my god sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, an incredible moment. But turned into, I think, one of the most kind of romantic and life-affirming stories you know an English player could ever have in the European Cup. I think because you know Villa were under serious pressure in this game I think it, even before Rimmer came off you're Bayern Munich you have to underscore they were heavy heavy favourites for this game so they had they had Rummenigge who'd won the Ballon d'Or for the previous two seasons um, Paul Breitner you know legendary player World Cup winner you know had just come back from Real Madrid and you know Argenthal and all, the, all these German internationals um, and Munich spent the night just peppering the Villa goal with uh, <laughs> shots and Spink was just outstanding I mean the amount of saves he made he didn't even know anything about a couple of them I think they just they just kind of uh, hit him but he had one of those you know a, a charmed life performance plus you know his own skill as well he made some really great saves and it transpired you know Nigel Spink would turn out to be a very very fine goalkeeper indeed and you know would, would play for Villa lots of times and would go on to be capped for England as well but we didn't know that then I mean at this point this is just a kid being thrown into um, you know about as high pressure a situation as you can imagine in football and he not only stood up to it but he he was absolutely outstanding and it's um, it's just it's such a fantastic story isn't it I think and it it, is wonderful the whole Villa story I think is has an incredible amount of charm to it um, over the years we've discussed and it's kind of topped off with this I think it's just uh, it's amazing I mean can you imagine the the sort of run up to it you've got Jimmy Rimmer there probably in a neck brace or something <laughs> trying to, to keep things and you, you're told by Tony Barton saying, oh, I'm, I'm going with Jimmy but you'll have to be ready Nigel you have to be ready because you know we don't know how long Jimmy's going to last but you're looking across at the goalkeeper and you're not good enough to get into the side ahead of a bloke who can barely stand up in a neck <laughs> yeah. popping Cody, you know, whatever it is. And then I remember the commentary. It was something along the lines of you know, Brian Moore saying, and, and Jimmy Rimmer's in trouble here. I, 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 this is extraordinary. Well, Nigel Spink 
Villa's reserve mm-hmm. goalkeeper. He's, got, he's only played one game before. He's 23 years old. Well, this is a test for the young man. And, and you know, we, we were all kind of surprised because, you know, you never got substitution in the first half, never mind nine minutes, and your know, goalkeepers never went off. You know, Bert Troutman plays on, for God's sake. What are you doing, Jimmy Rimmer? Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, he, he came on, and as you say, it was just a, it was just an extraordinary uh, performance. Um, you know, the cliche is to say, when it's your day, it's your day. But I mean, it was his day, but he made it his day. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there was a certain element, and I remember it at the time. I was not surprised by Peter With's goal uh, watching it because you just had the thought, it's like the reverse of watching England playing in World Cups and European Championships or whatever. It was because Liverpool had won and then Forrest had won, and you just got the feeling that an English club side were going to find a way here, and uh, they did find a way. And it it felt sort of predestined, or it felt that it was written in the stars, or whatever the cliches had it. And it wasn't to last, of course it wasn't to last, and you know, the tournament is all the better for the diversity of, of champions. But it was just that that run between Liverpool, Forest, and, and Villa. And it was a shock. And Bayern Munich were strong favourites. And yet watching it, you just thought, you know, there's a there's a John Robertson ball to Trevor Francis to nod into the top corner coming here. And it wasn't quite that. And God knows Peter With tried to miss the bottom corner with the uh, shot, but he just squeezed it in. Uh, but it, it it somehow didn't feel as much of a shock as it obviously was. Speaking One. of that goal. Villa still hanging on nil-nil. Mortimer, Shaw, Williams prepared to adventure down the left. There's a good ball played in for Tony Marley. Lovely bit of Brian Moore commentary there. Hmm. But yeah, and again, I think the goal itself typified everything of what we now know about this Villa team. Started off at a left-back, Gary Shaw involved, Tony Morley involved, and cut through cut through this quite formidable sweeper system that Munich had, leaving Peter Witter somehow, as you say, Gary, contrived to nearly miss the bloody thing from about two yards out. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact that they actually worked it to that position... At that stage of the game, after the, after being under the hammer really for most of the game, was was a lot to be said for it. Sorry, Mike, you were about to come in for a played that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I'll just touch on the goal. It's it's a really beautifully constructed goal. This, I mean, uh, start again again with Gary Shaw with the uh, with the pre assist this time. As, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm told we need to say about the pass before the pass that sets the goal up. Um, he uses Williams overlapping outside of him as a distraction, cuts back inside and then plays a really nice ball through the inside left channel to Morley. And then Morley turns, I think it's Hans Wiener, his name is, uh, kind of, I think it's Moore's uh, commentary after, said, oh, he turned him one way, he turned him the other. He just he had him spinning round like a, you know, kind of a, like a gymnast doing a pirouette, the defender, and then uh, squares the ball across the six-yard box to where... 
Withs waiting and a bit like uh, Mortimer going through against Liverpool. Withs got so much time to think about the finish and he almost misses it. (laughs) It slices off his right foot a bit and goes in off the post. I mean, he's got a huge margin for error on this finish and he used all of it to to get it in in the net. Um, And yeah, Villa are ahead and that's... uh, And you imagine how deflating that must be for Munich. Um, You know, after battering Villa for all that time to uh you know to have that um to have that goal going against them and I do think there must have been in the rest of Europe a bit of a thing about the English stranglehold on this competition because this is you know Villa are going for it here for the sixth uh year in a row for English clubs to win the European Cup and as Gary was alluded to before as I you know they would somehow always you know find a way to win and um yeah, it must have uh, yeah been really deflating for the Munich players uh, when that goal, a goal disallowed. <laughs> yeah, and they went on to have a goal disallowed as well. But um, yeah, I mean, this is I guess you know it's the greatest moment in Villa's history, no question. And you know the, the commentary you just played there is written on the hoarding uh, that separates two of the stands, I think, at Villa Park, and uh, yeah, really nicely constructed goal, and it's got you know. It's got Shaw in it, it's got Moy and it's got Wyth. And uh, yeah, and they had to hold on for 23 minutes then and the, the, the European Cup was theirs. Yeah. I mean, it shows in some ways that football can be a simple game in that you've got two ace cards in Shaw and Morley. If you get the ball to them often enough, something's going to happen. And then it comes to Peter Wyth and what Peter Wyth does is finish from the kind of penalty spot, if you like, to the uh, to the uh, goal line. And he was in that, that place, and yeah, he nearly missed it with the nerves, I suspect, as much as anything else. <laughs> but he did what he does at the end of it. And yeah, I, I don't think football is a simple game, but there are times when it looks simple. Uh, let great players be great players. Um, it was a Clough mantra, although I think he, he used it to sort of uh, pull a veil over some of his more... Uh, innovative thinking. Um, it was a persona that suited him to, to you know, sort of uh, make it look like it was just a, 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 all about good habits. But if the good habits that Villa had was getting the ball to Shaw, who got the ball to Morley, who did his thing, who got the ball to With, then you know, that goes a, a long, long way. And I don't mean that to denigrate it. I mean that's what you, that's what you're paid to do as a manager, is to meld that team together and then bring those resources to a peak when it was needed. And boy, it was at a peak. They won the European Cup. Wow. And English yeah, clubs but... kept winning the European Cup um, in spite of everything that we've talked about. A four, you know, Serie A had a 16-team league. We had a 42-game mm. season, two cups, endless replays. You know, I think when Forest won it in seven, in, in the first Forest year that they won it, they they played seventy plus games, and still, and, and that wasn't unusual for Liverpool. Were having decent cup runs throughout their run, like I mean, domestic cup runs as well. It's even more. I don't know what the answer is, but it's even more remarkable when you talk about. Everyone talks about the treadmill and how awful it must have been, and everyone was knackered and too many games, and yet we still kept winning the Premier European tournament against. You know, teams from the Eastern Bloc, who, like you said, are mostly an international team, really, who had who didn't have to play all those games, and if they did play too many games, the state would just say, "We'll stop doing that because we want to we want to win the European Cup." Yeah, I think sometimes it was good to have games because if they didn't have games, they were in the pub, so it kept them out. Of the <laughs> yeah, pub. Maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, it's it's. I don't know what the answer is, but it, it, it's truly remarkable. Yeah, it kind of moves in cycles, I think, or so, or did then anyway. The European Cup. I mean, you had the, you know, you had Madrid's domination at the very start of the competition. You had an era of Dutch clubs where you know Feyenoord and Ajax won it. Then you had Munich had a stranglehold on it for a while, and then you had the six years of English clubs. After that, you would have you know Serie A. Mm. Would have their cycle with it. I just it, it just seems to move through um, phases. I think I don't mean I, I wouldn't be able to pin down what the the exact reasons uh, were for it because you know, every, everything you talked about, you know, English clubs probably shouldn't have been winning it. You know, with that. Um, mm. It's you know, as density. they say in it's as they say in tennis matches. I think in in cup matches, it's about winning the big moments. It's about yeah. you know converting your your you know a forty thirty to a game as they say in tennis or winning a point at thirty thirty to to tilt a a game at four three in the fifth set or something and that can be a kind of combination of institutional memory and confidence and all of those that strange alchemy that we've talked about that come together to make an individual player and then put them into a a team but there was certainly a sense of that and. You know, the empirical evidence, as you say, Mike, is that, you know, this isn't a scatter map of European clubs. It's not even a scatter map of uh, of where the money was in European clubs or where the international players were. It's It, it just seems to be that, that you need that in those key moments to get the heart rate down from 170 to 110 and be able to to deal with the chance when it arises. And, you know, that's the glorious unscripted theatre of, of sport. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and we also see the rawness of uh, human emotion and human frailty along with the uh, with the joy and delight of, uh, of spectacular, uh, successful technicians uh, applying their trade at the highest level. So there's something about... Obviously, they win. Just last few minutes, we'll just kind of reflect on what happened next, really. Tony Barton remained as manager. He left in 1984. He's a hell of a quiz question answer, Tony Barton, isn't he, probably, at mm. some point. Um, you know, Villa finished sixth the season afterwards, uh, then 10th, then 10th. Ended up getting relegated in 86, 87. This is a one-off victory that doesn't probably get as much recognition as it deserves, maybe because Villa didn't maintain and... In a way, I find this more romantic than the than the Forest one, but yeah, it doesn't. Or the Forest two, sorry, but because it doesn't have Clough linked to it, I suppose we've said this a few times. But yeah, they didn't maintain it. It was a one of the best one off victories alongside sort of Celtic, Hamburg, style Bucharest, etc. Um, anything else to add on? You know what happened next or what we think about it? Well, like? I'll, I'll throw a couple of things in. Um, I mentioned before what I believed was uh, the bias of the media as a reason why Villa don't get the recognition. So I I looked up the Football Writers Association Footballer of the Year, which was very much the senior award then ahead of the PFA's uh, award. And um, in the season where Villa uh, won the European Cup, uh, where they kept all those clean sheets that, that Mike mentioned there. You might think they might give it to Jimmy Rimmer, uh, but he didn't play in the final. They might give it to Ken McNaught. You might, you might give it to Dennis Mortimer. Um, the Footballer of the Year for 1981-1982 was Steve Perryman. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just leave you to reflect on that. Villa win the European Cup, 
and the footballer of the year is Steve Perryman. According to the uh, writers, the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I'll uh, throw into the mix here is that um, I remember watching very clearly the European Super Cup final, which pitted Barcelona against uh, Aston Villa and the second leg. And I won't go on too much about it, but if you... Uh, played that clip of David Coleman talking about Chile versus Italy in the 1962 mm-hmm. um, World Cup. That was pretty much how I felt about uh, Barcelona. Villa did give a little bit back, including an extraordinary moment uh, beautifully covered by Paul Doyle with Ken McNaught. But my antipathy to Barcelona dates back to that uh, the, the, to that match. It was truly a disgrace, and it was a it was a disgrace of the highest order. It was a travesty of what sport is about. It was a travesty of player discipline. It had everything that was wrong in uh, football uh, that you can think of: disgraceful fouls, pressure pressuring the referee. It was just horrible. It was absolutely horrible, and. If you don't believe me, go and see some of those YouTube uh, highlights. But the best moment is where uh, Barcelona's goalkeeper, who uh, the expression head's gone isn't enough, has just kicked Gordon Cowens up in the air for the heinous crime of uh, scoring uh, a rebound off the the penalty. Um, Villa won that match, uh, I'm pleased to say. And... um, he, he's looking, spoiling for a fight for, for anybody. And I think Ken McNaught says he saw, I don't know if it was Cowens or one of the other players. And the big Scottish centre-half thinks, I've got to get involved here, stop uh, stop one of my players getting a chin in. And he runs up to the goalkeeper and then he sh- kind of shadow boxes with his hands in the air with a big grin on his face. And... The Barcelona goalkeeper, as all bullies do, immediately backs down <laughs> and Ken McNaught wheels away, laughing his head off. And I think that says something about that Villa side, that they had enough self-belief and they had enough leaders to cope with almost any situation. And it's a shame that it, the team disintegrated so quickly. And, you know, teams did in in, in those in those days in particular. You know, there wasn't the budgets and the you know, you didn't have the ability to the the resources to go out and buy, you know, three top class players to replace the players who at twenty nine and thirty had suddenly become thirty one, thirty two, thirty three. And uh you know, it was a shame, but it was a it was a nice postscript that, that Villa beat undoubtedly one of the most villainous uh, teams in a uh, showpiece event like the uh, European Super Cup. Can I just say about that game, actually? So this 1982, and there were 12 yellow and three red cards. It's... And there, could have been, there could have been double that number. I mean, the Barcelona players, in they were all lucky to stay how on. How bad must it have been? Yeah, yeah. They were lucky to stay on. How many of them um, were given for cowardice in the face of the enemy? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was our run through that Aston Villa team. We could go on a lot longer, but we, we, we you know, we have other things we need to do. But uh, probably, we could probably do another half hour about what happened next, really, and maybe that's something else we can talk about in another episode. But thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll speak to you all soon. Take care. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs> 